Section 50 of The History of Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio. InterfaceAudio.com. The History of Chemistry by Thomas Thompson. Volume 2, Chapter 3. The Progress of Scientific Chemistry in France. Part 7. Mr. Kirwan, who had acquired a high reputation, partly by his mineralogy and partly by his experiments on the composition of the salts, undertook the task of refuting the antiphlogistic theory, and with that view published a work to which he gave the name An Essay on Phlogiston and the Composition of Acids. In that book he maintained an opinion which seems to have been pretty generally adopted by the most eminent chemists of the time, namely that phlogiston is the same thing with what is at present called hydrogen, and which, when Kirwan wrote, was called light inflammable air. Of course, Mr. Kirwan undertook to prove that every combustible substance and every metal contains hydrogen as a constituent and that hydrogen escapes in every case of combustion and calcination. On the other hand, when calces are reduced to the metallic state, hydrogen is absorbed. The book was divided into 13 sections. In the first, the specific gravity of the gases was stated according to the best data then existing. The second section treats of the composition of acids, and the composition and decomposition of water. The third section treats of sulfuric acid, the fourth of nitric acid, the fifth of muriatic acid, the sixth of aqua regia, the seventh of phosphoric acid, the eighth of oxalic acid, the ninth of the calcination and reduction of metals, and the formation of fixed air, the tenth of the dissolution of metals, the eleventh of the precipitation of metals by each other the twelfth of the properties of iron and steel, while the thirteenth sums up the whole argument by way of conclusion. In this work, Mr. Kirwan admitted the truth of M. Lavoisier's theory that during combustion and calcination, oxygen united with the burning and calcining body. He admitted also that water is a compound of oxygen and hydrogen. Now these admissions, which, however, it was scarcely possible for a man of candor to refuse, rendered the whole of his arguments in favor of the identity of hydrogen and phlogiston, and of the existence of hydrogen in all combustible bodies, exceedingly inconclusive. Kirwan's book was laid hold of by the French chemists, as affording them an excellent opportunity of showing the superiority of the new opinions over the old. Kirwan's view of the subject was that which had been taken by Bergman and Scheele, and indeed by every chemist of eminence who still adhered to the phlogistic system. A satisfactory refutation of it, therefore, would be a death blow to phlogiston, and would place the anti-phlogistic theory upon a basis so secure that it would be henceforth impossible to shake it. Kirwan's work on phlogiston was accordingly translated into French and published in Paris. At the end of each section was placed an examination and refutation of the argument contained in it by some one of the French chemists, who had now associated themselves in order to support the anti-phlogistic theory. 
The introduction, together with the second, third, and eleventh sections, were examined and refuted by Monsieur Lavoisier. The fourth, the fifth, and sixth sections fell to the share of Monsieur Berthollet. The seventh and thirteenth sections were undertaken by Monsieur de Morveau, the eighth, ninth, and tenth by Monsieur de Fourcroix, while the twelfth section on iron and steel was animadverted on by Monsieur Mong. These refutations were conducted with so much urbanity of manner, and were at the same time so complete, that they produced all the effects expected from them. Mr. Kirwan, with a degree of candor and liberality of which, unfortunately, very few examples can be produced, renounced his old opinions, abandoned phlogiston, and adopted the anti-phlogistic doctrines of his opponents. But his advanced age, and a different mode of experimenting from what he had been accustomed to, induced him to withdraw himself entirely from experimental science, and to devote the evening of his life to metaphysical and logical and moral investigations. Thus, soon after the year 1790, a kind of interregnum took place in British chemistry. Almost all the old British chemists had relinquished the science, or been driven out of the field by the superior prowess of their antagonists. Dr. Austin and Dr. Pearson will perhaps be pointed out as exceptions. They undoubtedly contributed somewhat to the progress of the science, but they were arranged on the side of the antiphlogistians. Dr. Crawford, who had done so much for the theory of heat, was about this time ruined in his circumstances by the bankruptcy of a house to which he had entrusted his property. This circumstance preyed upon a mind which had a natural tendency to morbid sensibility, and induced this amiable and excellent man to put an end to his existence. Dr. Higgins had acquired some celebrity as an experimenter and teacher, but his disputes with Dr. Priestley, and his laying claim to discoveries which certainly did not belong to him, had injured his reputation, and led him to desert the field of science. Dr. Black was an invalid, Mr. Cavendish had renounced the cultivation of chemistry, and Dr. Priestley had been obliged to escape from the iron hand of theological and political bigotry by leaving the country. He did little as an experimenter after he went to America, and perhaps had he remained in England, his reputation would rather have diminished than increased. He was an admirable pioneer, and as such contributed more than any one to the revolution which chemistry underwent, though he was himself utterly unable to rear a permanent structure capable, like the Newtonian theory, of withstanding all manner of attacks, and becoming only the firmer and stronger the more it is examined. Mr. Keir of Birmingham was a man of great eloquence, and possessed all the chemical knowledge which characterized the votaries of phlogiston. In the year 1789, he attempted to stem the current of the new opinions by publishing a dictionary of chemistry, in which all the controversial points were to be fully discussed, and the antiphlogistic theory examined and refuted. Of this dictionary only one part appeared, constituting a very thin volume of 208 quarto pages and treating almost entirely of acids. Finding that the sale of this work did not answer his expectations, 
and probably feeling as he proceeded that the task of refuting the antiphlogistic opinions was much more difficult and much more hopeless than he expected he renounced the undertaking and abandoned altogether the pursuit of chemistry it will be proper in this place to introduce some account of the most eminent of those french chemists who embraced the theory of lavoisier and assisted him in establishing his opinions Claude Louise Berthollet was born at Talois, near Annecy, in Savoy, on the 9th of December, 1748. He finished his school education at Chambéry and afterwards studied at the College of Turin, a celebrated establishment, where many men of great scientific celebrity had been educated. Here he attached himself to medicine, and after obtaining a degree he repaired to Paris, which was destined to be the future theatre of his speculations and pursuits. In Paris he had not a single acquaintance, nor did he bring with him a single introductory letter. But understanding that Monsieur Tronchin, at that time a distinguished medical practitioner in Paris, was a native of Geneva, he thought he might consider him as in some measure a countryman. On this slender ground he waited on Monsieur Tronchin, and what is rather surprising, and reflects great credit on both, this acquaintance, begun in so uncommon a way, soon ripened into friendship. Tronchin interested himself for his young protégé, and soon got him into the situation of physician in ordinary to the Duke of Orleans, father of him who cut so conspicuous a figure in the French Revolution, under the name of Monsieur Egalité. In this situation he devoted himself to the study of chemistry, and soon made himself known by his publications on the subject. In 1781 he was elected a member of the Academy of the Sciences of Paris. One of his competitors was Monsieur Fourcroix. No doubt Berthollet owed his election to the influence of the Duke of Orleans. In the year of 1784, he was again a competitor with Monsieur de Fraquois for the chemical chair at the Jardin du Roi, left vacant by the death of Macaire. The chair was in the gift of M. Buffon, whose vanity is said to have been piqued because of the Duke of Orleans, who supported Berthollet's interest, did not pay him sufficient court. This induced him to give the chair to Fraquois and the choice was a fortunate one as his uncommon vivacity and rapid elocution particularly fitted him for addressing a parisian audience the chemistry class at the jardin du roi immediately became celebrated and attracted immense crowds of admiring auditors but the influence of the duke of orleans was sufficient to procure for berthollet another situation which macaire had held this was government commissary and superintendent of the dyeing processes it was this situation which naturally turned his attention to the phenomena of dyeing and occasioned afterwards his book on dyeing which at the time of its publication was excellent and exhibited a much better theory of dyeing and a better account of the practical part of the art than any work which had previously appeared the arts of dyeing and calico printing have been very much improved since the time that Berthollet's book was written. Yet if we accept Bancroft's work on the permanent colors, 
Nothing very important has been published on the subject since that period. We are at present almost as much in want of a good work on dying as we were when Berthollet's book appeared. In the year 1785, Berthollet, at a meeting of the Academy of Sciences, informed that learned body that he had become a convert to the antiphlogistic doctrines of Lavoisier. There was one point, however, upon which he entertained a different opinion from Lavoisier, and this difference of opinion continued to the last. Berthollet did not consider oxygen as the acidifying principle. On the contrary, he was of opinion that acids existed which contained no oxygen whatever. As an example, he mentioned sulfurated hydrogen, which possessed the properties of an acid, reddening vegetable blues, and combining with and neutralizing bases. And yet it was a compound of sulfur and hydrogen, and contained no oxygen whatever. It is now admitted that Berthollet was accurate in his opinion, and that oxygen is not of itself an acidifying principle. Berthollet continued in the uninterrupted prosecution of his studies, and had raised himself a very high reputation when the French Revolution burst upon the world in all its magnificence. It is not our business here to enter into any historical details, but merely to remind the reader that all the great powers of Europe combined to attack France, assisted by a formidable army of French emigrants assembled at Coblenz. The Austrian and Prussian armies hemmed her in by land, while the British fleet surrounded her by sea, and thus shut her out from all communication with other nations. Thus France was thrown at once upon her own resources. She had been in the habit of importing her saltpetre and her iron, and many other necessary implements of war. These supplies were suddenly withdrawn, and it was expected that France, thus deprived of all her resources, would be obliged to submit to any terms imposed upon her by her adversaries. At this time she summoned her men of science to her assistance, and the call was speedily answered. Berthollet and Monge were particularly active, and saved the French nation from destruction by their activity, intelligence, and zeal. Berthollet traversed France from one extremity to the other, pointed out the mode of extracting saltpetre from the soil and of purifying it. Saltpetre works were instantly established in every part of France, and gunpowder made of it in prodigious quantity and with incredible activity. Berthollet even attempted to manufacture a new species of gunpowder, still more powerful than the old, by substituting chlorate of potash for saltpetre. But it was found too formidable a substance to be made with safety. The demand for cannon, muskets, sabres, etc., was equally urgent and equally difficult to be supplied. A committee of men of science, of which Berthollet and Monge were the leading members, was established, and by them the mode of smelting iron and of converting it into steel was instantly communicated, and numerous manufactories of these indispensable articles rose like magic in every part of France. This was the most important period of the life of Berthollet. It was in all probability his zeal, activity, sagacity, and honesty which saved France 
from being overrun by foreign troops. But perhaps the moral conduct of Berthollet was not less conspicuous than his other qualities. During the reign of terror, a short time before the ninth Thermidor, when it was the system to raise up pretended plots to give pretext for putting to death those that were obnoxious to Robespierre and his friends, a hasty notice was given at a sitting of the Committee of Public Safety that a conspiracy had just been discovered to destroy the soldiers by poisoning the brandy which was just going to be served out to them previous to an engagement. It was said that the sick in the hospitals who had tasted this brandy all perished in consequence of it. Immediate orders were issued to arrest those previously marked for execution. A quantity of the brandy was sent to Berthollet to be examined. He was informed at the same time that Robespierre wanted a conspiracy to be established, and all knew that opposition to his will was certain destruction. Having finished his analysis, Berthollet drew up his results in a report, which he accompanied with a written explanation of his views, and he there stated, in the plainest language, that nothing poisonous was mixed with the brandy, but that it had been diluted with water holding small particles of slate in suspension, an ingredient which filtration would remove. This report deranged the plans of the Committee of Public Safety. They sent for the author, to convince him of the inaccuracy of his analysis, and to persuade him to alter its results. Finding that he remained unshaken in his opinion, Robespierre exclaimed, What, sir, darest thou affirm that the muddy brandy is free from poison? Berthollet immediately filtered a glass of it in his presence, and drank it off. Thou art daring, sir, to drink that liquor, exclaimed the ferocious president of the committee. I dared much more, replied Berthollet, when I signed my name to that report. There can be no doubt that he would have paid the penalty of this undaunted honesty with his life, but that fortunately the Committee of Public Safety could not at that time dispense with his services. In the year 1792, Berthollet was named one of the commissioners of the Mint, into the processes of which he introduced considerable improvements. In 1794 he was appointed a member of the Commission of Agriculture and the Arts, and in the course of the same year he was chosen Professor of Chemistry at the Polytechnic School, and also in the Normal School. But his turn of mind did not fit him for a public teacher. He expected too much information to be possessed by his hearers, and did not therefore dwell sufficiently upon the elementary details. His pupils were not able to follow his metaphysical disquisitions on subjects totally new to them. Hence, instead of inspiring them with a love for chemistry, he filled them with languor and disgust. In 1795, at the organization of the Institute, which was intended to include all men of talent or celebrity in France, we find Berthollet taking a most active lead, and the records of the Institute afford abundant evidence of the perseverance and assiduity with which he labored for its interests. Of the committees to which all original memoirs are in the first place referred, we find Berthollet, oftener than any other person, a member, and his signature to the report of each work, stands generally first. In the year 1796, 
after the subjugation of Italy by Bonaparte, Berthollet and Monge were selected by the Directory to proceed to that country, in order to select those works of science and art with which the Louvre was to be filled and adorned. While engaged in the prosecution of that duty, they became acquainted with the victorious general. He easily saw the importance of their friendship, and therefore cultivated it with care, and was happy afterwards to possess them, along with nearly a hundred other philosophers, as his companions, in his celebrated expedition to Egypt, expecting, no doubt, an eclat from such a halo of surrounding science as might favor the development of his schemes of future greatness. On this expedition, which promised so favorably for the French nation, and which was intended to inflict a mortal stab upon the commercial greatness of Great Britain, Bonaparte set out in the year 1798, accompanied by a crowd of the most eminent men of science that France could boast of. That they might cooperate more effectually in the cause of knowledge, these gentlemen formed themselves into a society, named the Institute of Egypt which was constituted on the same plan as the National Institute of France. Their first meeting was on the 6th Fructidor, 24th of August, 1798, and after that they continued to assemble at stated intervals. At these meetings, papers were read by the respective members on the climate, the inhabitants, and the natural and artificial productions of the country to which they had gone. These memoirs were published in 1800, in Paris, in a single volume entitled Memoirs of the Institute of Egypt. End of section 50. Recording by Lawrence Trask. Mount Vernon, Ohio. InterfaceAudio.com.